Well, that's what I'm talking about tonight. I know, but I already had that. I was already like, that was already your question? question. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't believe you. <laughs> Dan? Yeah. So, um, so here's one of the things that I, I found over the years, because that's how that's how my brain works. I'm very, um, I'm very um, analytical, and to me, to me, this says this says this, which means this means this. You know, very systematic apologetic mentality of, uh, to scripture. That's how, that's how I process information. I think that comes out often when I'm speaking. I try, I actually try not to do that all the time, okay? I try not to make my sermons uh, proof texting of scripture. You understand what I mean by that? Where, okay, if this, if, um, if, if you say God so loved the world, you know, s- spending an hour talking about all the different um, uh, theological things about God so loved the world. Does God love the world? You know, those kind of things. And uh, I, I really try to work at having different styles. There's different styles, the way that people process information. We all process information differently, right? And I try to bring those uh, different ones out to some level. Okay, I, I go through times and seasons where I don't as much. And then I go through times and seasons where I do because I realize, oh, I haven't done this as much. And I need to be more um, uh, intentional about that. Apologetics is my approach. But here, here is, I mean, my natural uh, default. But here's what I found when it comes to witnessing to somebody. There's a few things that I think. So, so I'm old enough to, to, um, to have been in, in a couple different um, f- uh, phases or eras of um, Society and cultural thinking, okay? Society changes and continues to change, and we approach information differently. We look at, we look at ourselves differently and stuff like that. And I don't mean um, like how we identify. That's not what I'm talking about. But as human beings, we process uh, the, the big picture of life in relationship to ourselves differently as time progresses. Okay? And, and we have cultural changes in how we look at each other, and there's a lot of things that affect that. But one of the things that I found is an apologetic approach to witnessing is becoming uh, less effective um, at the beginning. I think it becomes more effective once they start actually caring and being interested in who Jesus is, okay? And I would say apologetics is actually the most important after you get saved, not before you get saved, because now you're wanting to know the information, right? It's like, the, it's like when you first um, meet someone. You're lo- young. You're looking for love. It's springtime. And uh, that special someone walks across your path. 
your first reaction is not um, where, I'm going to say from the guy's point of view, where did she come from? What are her parents' names? Uh, exactly what day was she born? Was she born in a hospital or was she born at home? What is her genealogy? You understand what I'm saying? Because you don't care about that stuff, right? Yeah, you can be married 20 years before you care when your wife's birthday is. <laughs> Easy. And one day you're like, wait a second. You have a birthday too, don't you? Yeah, that kind of thing. So, um, but I think, I think if we can kind of switch gears a little bit. And so I am going to talk about this here. And so I'll include that too. Now, having good solid apologetics on some very basic things. I think there are some, some things that are more important than others, right? If you've ever been to, to my journey class on Sunday nights, I talk about this. Every single time we have one of those, I talk about what is the most, in, you know, what are the most important theological things, what are the least most important? Um, I don't need to say least most important, but what are the most important? What are the, what are the hills we're willing to die on? And what are the hills that are not? Where is their wiggle room is usually the way I ask it. Where is there wiggle room within our theology? And usually when I ask that, people say, there's not wiggle room. The Word of God is true. Yes, the Word of God, the word of God is true. But what I'm saying wiggle room is which ones are heaven or hell issues and which ones are not. And there's actually only very few heaven or hell issues in Scripture. Those you really need to know backwards and forwards because they do make a difference in your eternal direction. And they, they will be part of a conversation with somebody somewhere along the way. Um, a lot of the other stuff is kind of in addition to. You know, when I'm talking to somebody about the Lord, sometimes I get the strangest remarks from people. And they'll say, well, I heard this was in the Bible. And my first reaction is, no, you're an idiot. You know, we're, but, but that's not helpful. So, it's, yeah, so, so let's establish that. Write that down. That is not helpful. <clears throat> but he, here's the thing with that. Is there's nothing wrong with saying, Oh, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. Okay? You, you know, right after the, the movie Noah came out with, um, with what's his face? Russell Crowe. Crow. Man, I had questions from all kinds of people. You know, you're walking through a grocery store, and they're like, aren't you the pastor of that church? Are there really rock monsters in the Bible? I'm like, no. <laughs> there are not. Okay? Um, but then well, here's a, here's a way to say something like that. I've done this kind of thing many times. Are there rock monsters in the Bible? No, but they're giants. You know, they're different and, and they're also including what we would call the Anakim and stuff like that. And any of the people from Gath or Anak or any of those, and they made them rock monsters. So I, either way. But you can say stuff like that. I, I've had this conversation specifically with teenagers, um, kids, things like that, when they're really... Because mo most, most people think the Bible is really boring. And, and I just don't understand. You can't read the Bible. In my opinion, you can't read the Bible very long at all before you start getting excited about a lot of stuff that's going on in there. I, the, the battles in the Bible and how they did them, and, and they even give you... Um, I mean, Sun Tzu could learn from biblical battles, might have, actually, uh, before he wrote um, his book, right? 
There's some really cool stuff going on all through Scripture, and the, the coolest guys on the planet. I wish somebody would do a movie series. You know, you got all these um, Marvel movies and and um, the other ones, DC. I oh, got all this stuff, and they're you know they're cool. They got some cool stuff and all this kind of stuff. Although this is just me here. You make your own thing. Do you realize they've been changing over the last four or five years, and they're becoming more and more about a woman beats all of the men. In all the battles. Have you noticed that? You may think I'm being misogynistic, but that's not very realistic. Okay? Women, you cannot beat us. Let's just say that right there. Okay? And very, very, very weird in their approach, and everything has to be woke. That stuff drives me crazy. But I'd love to see a movie series on David and his mighty men. And you could run, there's 30 and then there's three. So you could have four movies just on the basics of David and his three top guys. That's four movies right there. And all of them can be true and still be more amazing than any of the Marvel movies. Think about that. Somebody name one of the guys' names that fought the lion in the pit. Ben, ben Aya. Ben Aya. Ben, it's, I don't know how to say it. That's close. Ben Aya. Um, think about that. He slides down into a pit on a snowy day, and a lion tries to attack him and kill him, and he ends up hands, not weapons, and fights the lion, defeats the lion. I think he might have had a spear. But that's it. You, you can make movies about dudes like that. That's real guys. Right? What did you say? Yeah, it is a book series. I'm reading it right now. Actually, I finished it. I'm reading the other series. But it's an amazing book series. Guys, I, I strongly recommend, especially if you, if, I think, if you, I don't know how girls would look at it, but if you're a guy, it's a great series. Gruesome. It is gruesome, too. It's, they're called The Day of War by Cliff Graham. He was, a, he was a special forces guy in the military, got out and, and, and was looking at the stories of David and said, I'm going I'm to write these as fictional books, but they're all very, they're all factual based. It's all straight out of scripture, where they're going, what they're doing, where the battles are, who's fighting the battles, all the different people. But then he makes them fictional. So the people are talking to each other and interacting. And, and it's, he, it's amazing. The series is amazing. Um, it will make you think about David in fact, I've, I've even kind of changed one of the ways that I pray because of this series. Um, David is, is praying for the covering. And it's, it's the way we would call that today is the anointing. And he says when he goes into battle, God, give me the covering. Give me the covering in the day of war. And then one time somebody asked David about that. He said, well, we're not even in war. And he says, every day is a day of war. You need the covering. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just great. <clears throat> Elijah, yeah. And there, there's all kinds of stuff in Scripture that is exciting stuff. So here's, here's the reason I'm saying all that. There's plenty of stuff in the Bible that you can talk to people about to have conversations to get to the, the why of all of that stuff. What is the why of all the stories? It's Jesus. That's the why. 
So you gotta, you got to kind of process how do you get there. And I don't think, coming back to what Dan said, I don't think apologetics is the way to approach that nowadays. I do believe 30, 40 years ago that was the way to approach it because a lot more people um, had at least some biblical background or at least a, um, an honoring or some type of respect for the Bible. Okay, That's not the case now. Uh, most people don't care about the Bible, don't care. In fact, if... Uh, one of the things that I try to do when I'm starting to talk to somebody is I try to leave out some information at first. Um, and it's not because I'm ashamed of it. I, I, had, a, I had a guy, I was doing an evangelism seminar one time, and this guy just started, well, you're ashamed of the Bible. I'm not ashamed of the Bible. I mean, you can't know me long at all before you know I'm not ashamed of the Bible. But for some people, if you say Bible somewhere early in the conversation, they, cut, they shut you down in, in their mind. They may still be smiling on but they don't care about the Bible, and to them that's a turnoff because they assume there's all kinds of horrible things in the Bible. It's a misogynistic, patriarchal book that demeans women, demeans homosexuals, demeans um, whatever category you want in there. It's a racist book. I've heard people talk about that. It's a racist book, which is interesting because Jesus wasn't white. You know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. So the, the idea that that you bring up the Bible. I don't usually bring up the Bible. Um, I don't say the word Bible, but I will begin talking about things that the Bible says. But I don't say the word Bible. And I try not to tell them I'm a pastor. I try, as, I try to go as long as I can before I tell them I'm a pastor. And usually the only time I say that is when they ask me directly, what do you do? And sometimes I don't even tell them then. <clears throat> um, I heard a guy say a statement similar to this one time. So sometimes somebody will say, like if I'm in, in, a, in a very uh, foreign setting, not like a foreign country, but like in a different state where people don't know anything about me or whatever, they'll say, what do you do for a living? I'll tell them I'm a cultural architect. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, that's, yeah, those are cool. Like they know what that is, you know. Ooh, yeah, did you go to school for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> So, so here's, where, here's where we're trying to get to when it comes to witnessing. What is the goal when we're witnessing? It's actually what I would say would be your, um, your primary goal and your end game. Okay, let's start with end game. What's the end game? That they, they accept Jesus as their Savior. Okay, that's the end game. And that's where you're headed for. That's not always as quick and as simple and easy as just, well, let's get them there. You have to talk to people. You have to understand some things. You guys realize, statistically, most everybody that ever gets saved gets saved from a, a friend or a, a family member, a loved one. Somebody they trust, somebody they care about, okay? Now, that doesn't mean you cannot do, um, like, what I call cold evangelism, uh, cold call evangelism. You can, and I have done that, but usually those circumstances are pretty unique, and they present themselves more than you pursue them, Okay? Um, I, I've done a lot over the years. I've done a lot of street evangelism, door-to-door -door evangelism. We, we used to do that years ago. We used to do that every single weekend. I'd go, I say we. I was by myself most of the time, and then sometimes I'd have people with me. But I did that for years, and I, and I actually don't mind that. I, I like that kind of interaction. It's the same thing I'm doing as an as a, um, uh, elected statesman. Um, I... You know, you just walk up to somebody's door, how you doing? I'm Scott, and you start from there, right? You're 
guiding and pushing the conversation, leading and all that kind of stuff. It's not that very, it's not very effective. Okay, it just isn't. Um, people don't like that. My wife won't answer the door when people ring the doorbell. And, and sometimes I, I will, and she'll tell me the whole time, don't buy anything, don't buy anything. But sometimes what they have is cool. You've got to admit that. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes they, this will clean your whole house. Look, and you can drink it. And I'm like, give me a drink. Let me see. And I, I bought some of that stuff one time. So I actually buy things often. Um, yeah. Um, you know, when the kids are doing the calendars for their school, I'm going to buy one. When they're doing the cards, you know, buy this card and you get all these discounts and we use it once, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm a sucker for all that. But when somebody comes to the door, hey, can I tell you about uh, my Lord and Savior? You're like, nope. All right. Okay. So relationship is important in this witnessing thing. Let's go to John chapter 1. We're going to break down a few things with all of this. <clears throat> Where's my Bible? Um, th th there's actually many, many examples of, of witnessing all through Scripture. It's, it's fact, it's amazing how many, it's in New Testament, how many like one-on-one -on -one moments there are where somebody is being witnessed to. I can't get this up. There we go. No, I don't, I don't use those kind of Bibles. <laughs> All right. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 35. Uh, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. Now, who, who is this John we speak of? It's John the Baptist, okay? John already had a very strong, powerful ministry. Um, he was really preaching strongly, you know, the, the message of repent and uh, turn from your sins. Repent and turn from your sins. He wasn't preaching necessarily uh, Jesus because Jesus had not really established ministry yet, but he was preaching repent, turn from your sins, the Messiah is coming. Okay, that's, that's what he was preaching about. And I remember he was also, how, how was he related to Jesus? His cousin. I just think that's cool. I just, you know, just family. Just, it's just cool. He was his cousin. You're the cousin of the Messiah. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't there something about that? I had, a, I had an uncle years ago. He's a great uncle. I don't even remember his name. My dad will remember, I'm sure, as I'm telling this. But um, he used to always tell us stories of all this stuff that he had. And these, he was always wealthy and he's a millionaire and all these different things. And he's got you know, villas in France, all this stuff. I don't remember what they were, but it was stuff all of our life. One time I was about 10 or 11, and I said something about um, this uncle. I don't, do you know who I'm talking about? Um, I said something about this uncle, and uh, my grandfather was there, my dad was there. My dad looked at me, and he said, you know he doesn't have any of that stuff, right? I was like, what? He just makes all this stuff up. He's not a millionaire. He doesn't have all these houses and all this stuff. I go, 
why is he telling me this stuff? And that's, that's where my grandfather said, well, I think he believes it. And, and that really messed me up. I didn't know that. Psychologically, I wasn't ready for that at nine. I couldn't figure that out. But, but it's, um, your, your cousin comes to you one day and says, hey, by the way, I'm the king of the world. I'm the Messiah. I am God inside this human flesh. Right? Do, do you see how, how big of a thing this is? But here's the, and we do see where John did struggle with this, by the way. Now, he had a lot of background information because his parents told him when the angels visited them, about when the angels visited them, and then Jesus was born shortly thereafter and the angels visited them. They, they told John about all this. They told Jesus about all this. But still, you're like, yeah, but that's cousin Jesus. And, and that's why John actually had his, he questioned, he sent a message to Jesus one time and said, are you truly the Messiah? Because he was believing it more than most people but still struggling. We know he was believing it more than most because when Jesus came up to the water to be baptized, he said, I'm not even unworthy to tie, untie your sandals. Have you ever seen a cousin of the same age say that to another cousin? I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, which, which there's, a, there's a whole lineage there that comes along with priesthood and everything else. I mean, that's, man. And then the fact that, that he's called Elijah, too, or, or after the form of Elijah. So, as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Now, I don't know that they were all in with Jesus yet, but they followed Jesus. Why did they follow Jesus? This is one of the keys to witnessing. Why did these two disciples follow Jesus? Completely. All in, 100% with John. And then John says, that is the Lamb of God. And this was not the only... Jesus says this just a, a, a few days later, to actually probably a few weeks later. He says the exact same sentence when he's baptizing. Right? So his two disciples followed Jesus because they trusted the person telling them. Because this is, this is important when it comes to us trying to witness to people. Sometimes the people we're trying to tell about this don't trust us enough to follow Jesus. Or at least investigate who Jesus is. That, that should be sobering for us and convicting for us, right? I, I've... I, I've told stories before about years ago with my neighbors. I, I didn't always see the big picture of who I was on the planet and who I was as a follower of God and who I was within the kingdom. And sometimes I had arguments and fights and stuff with my neighbors because they were jerks. I wasn't a jerk. I've never been a jerk, ever. But why, why is that funny? No. Um. And, and here's the thing is then, you know, you're a jerk to your neighbor, and then uh, two weeks later, your church is having a witness to your neighbor campaign. <laughs> and now you got to go witness to your neighbor after you called him names or, or you know, you didn't. You, this is one of the things I've just done for years now because this makes easy inroads to conversations with your neighbors. When you're doing something in, in your yard or you're like e an easy one, shoveling snow, 
shovel their sidewalk too. You say, well, they got three teenage boys in there that could shovel it. Then guess who's going to be the most thankful you shoveled? Right? Do something like that. When you, when you make a big old thing of cookies, take five or six of them to your neighbor. It won't kill you. It'll probably help you. I mean, you could, you could make a list right now to do things to make better relationships with the people around you in your neighborhood. Just those people. You could do things right now um, that would help that. Instead of some of the things that you might be doing that are hindering that. It's very difficult to witness to somebody when they don't respect you. It's pretty much impossible. Right? So John's two disciples take off because of John. Not because of Jesus yet. Now, and I've heard people say, well, he, he, he said he was the Lamb of God, so they were following the Lamb of God. They were not following the Lamb of God in their head. They were trusting John in their head. Jesus looked around and saw them. What do you want? <laughs> I don't know if he said it mean like. And they, they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, come and see. I love that answer because he's, he's, um, he's just kind of pulling them along a little bit. I don't know. Do you want to know? Right? Do you want to know? You're following me. Keep following me. Jesus always did stuff like that. He made, you, he made you go after information. He made you process stuff. He didn't just lay it out there and say this. That's why he talked in parables so much. One of the reasons is so that we would understand it better years later without cultural context. Okay? But at the same time, he was doing this in such a way that people would have to think and process uh, this information. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. <clears throat> I, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the men, one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. So one of the first people to start to kick this thing off was actually a follower of John. He wasn't a follower of Jesus at the beginning. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah. Now, all of a sudden, Andrew is saying, I personally have found the Messiah. That means somewhere between <clears throat> verse 37 and verse 41, those few hours that they were hanging out with Jesus uh, at the home where Jesus was staying, they heard, understood, and processed stuff that showed them in their own hearts that Jesus was the Messiah. They now, they now were a believer. They got it. It was personal for them. Okay, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And when Andrew says this to Simon, these are both good Jewish boys. They basically were saying, we have found God in human flesh. God among us. That's not, we have found a good teacher. They already had a good teacher. That was John. We found a good godly man. They already had a good godly man. That was John. We found the Messiah. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. That was one of those, um, you know, the uh, preacher standing in the church says, Somebody in here has a, a bad knee, right? Except this one was pretty specific. He says, Your name is... I, I've often wanted that. I'm not trying to be... Um, Critical of preachers that call stuff out like that in services. I've had God do that with me a couple of times. 
Not a lot, a couple of times. Probably because I'm not quite as open as I should be to it. But here's one of the things. When they say somebody in here has a problem with their knee, and they listen to people go, hmm, and kneecap, kneecap, that is on your left, right knee. You know, that kind of, and after a while, you're just like, really? I want them to do that. I want them to say, and they don't know anybody in the room, I want them to say, your name is Rick Brown. You have served in the military for 38 years, and you're dealing with this in your life. Then there's no question, right? We're kind of all on the same page, like, all right, that was legit. That's what Jesus does. He says, your name is Simon, son of John. Nobody told him that. He says, your name is Simon, son of John, but I'm going to change your name. First, second, he met him. He said, I'm going to change your name because you're going to be different. And you're going to have a purpose that's beyond you. Guys, these are things that are important in our process of thinking to, when we're talking to somebody about Jesus. Why? Because when you, when you are telling somebody about Jesus, you are actually giving them eternal life as a choice. You're giving them the opportunity to investigate whether they want this. That they can be forgiven of their sins. And, and you, I mean, when you are forgiven of your sins, you know it. I, I very, very rarely have I ever come across anybody that when you talk to them and you pray with them, they go, I don't know. I don't think I'm forgiven. I've come without, across with that a few times. In fact, when I do, you know, I actually talk about this in the journey. If you pray with somebody to accept Jesus, I think it's a good thing to say, um, do you believe that Jesus just forgave your sins? Do you believe that he just uh, became God over your life? If they say, I'm not sure, what should you do? Pray again. Why? Something's not connecting in their mind or their spirit. Maybe they're not processing what they're praying or whatever. But I know what it is to have the weight of sin taken off of me when I'm forgiven. And they will too. And here's the cool thing about it. You can tell people this. God has a purpose for you that will amaze you. What, what, what is it? I don't know. I'm barely figuring out his purpose for me. But I know he has a purpose for you and he has a plan for you. And there's a lot of stories in the Bible that can tell you that, that can show you that. And you could, you could easily come up with a few right now if you're thinking stories where somebody was nothing and God says, I'm going to make you something, and then he does. Give me some names. Gideon's the first one everybody says. It's the best one, right? Gideon, what about David? He was a shepherd boy. Just a shepherd, then he became king. Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, I mean all of these things. Then you go into the New Testament, you see the same thing. Philip was just a guy, and he's, he's preaching and teaching to people and, and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then God transports him to somewhere else. Right? I really, I don't think it happened, but I wish it would have been like shimmery. Ooh, they're gone, you know? Because you know the Ethiopian would remember that, Right? Well, I'm pretty sure he did remember just poof, too. That, that can stand in your mind. So now we're getting to, we're getting to some like bigger subject stuff. Jesus is actually going to change um, Peter's name to Peter and say, okay, I've got, th there's some big stuff coming on. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come and follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and P Peter's hometown. 
Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. This is not small language. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was saying that in our service, and I was using Boulder as an example. And I said, it's like, it's like Boulder. Can any good thing come from Boulder? <laughs> and this lady came up to me after church and said, I'm, I'm from Boulder. I was like, ah, the first thing we found that's good from Boulder. <clears throat> right, because I'm not an idiot, that's why. Come and see for yourself. As they approached, Jesus said, now here's a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Just as a complete side note, not about anything we're talking about tonight, I hope Jesus sees me that way. I, man, I hope Jesus sees me that way. I believe I'm that. But then sometimes I don't think I'm that, right? You know what I'm saying. Doing good, you know, you're serving God, but then sometimes you get a, you get a glimpse of the inner self and that, um, that um, the best of our holiness is filthy rags kind of thinking, you know. <clears throat> it is. I, I don't think we should be condemned. I do believe that's where Romans 8.1 comes in. But I also believe you got to be a little careful if you have an assumption that you're always good all the time. You should have a lifestyle of repentance. Not because you're condemned, Romans 8.1, but back up into chapter 7, you're trying to follow the Holy Spirit. Where Paul says, I'm, I do the wrong thing every, I do the wrong thing. Every time I want to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. Because then later, after, you know, a few verses later is when he says, you're not condemned in Christ Jesus. Now, That's huge. I like that. <clears throat> Verse 48, how do you know me, Nathaniel asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Do you realize he never says, he never says this, you're a person of a complete integrity to anybody else in the New Testament. There are certain statements that Jesus says one time to one person, a handful of times through the New Testament. Not, some are not good. He, he, he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Right? You know the other disciples, like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew he was Satan. Right? Yeah, to sift him like we... <clears throat> has specifically got his sights on you, Peter. That's, but then, the, of course, in the next sentence is, but I got you. I got your back. You know. Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will see all heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And we know where that reference comes from, right? You know where that visual comes from in Scripture? Jacob, right? When Jacob had his name, um, no, that was earlier, but that guy had his name changed to Israel. So 
All right, so here's some things that I think are important when it comes to this, this, this telling people. Because um, these guys were telling people about Jesus, and they had just met Jesus. He hadn't even died on the cross yet. They, we, they didn't have all of the New Testament like we have. All of this information, they're lacking, but they're recognizing that Jesus is God. So here's some things that I think are important when you're, when you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus. One is you really need to believe what you, the message. You need to believe the gospel. You say, well, yeah, but not, let's not just, but yeah, I'll move past that. Uh, I think that's becoming less and less of a common thing in the American church. Do you really believe the gospel? What is the basics? Give me very, very simplistic three or four basics of what salvation is. <clears throat> Trust what? Who? Trust God. And, and that's a big subject, okay? Trust God that this is from him. This is him. Jesus is God. All those kind of things, okay? So what's another detail? <clears throat> Jesus died and rose again, okay? Um, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's an important, very important aspect. Now, here is the, the thing that needs to be included within that is why. Okay, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We've all sinned. Because that part is being left out of the story a lot in today's church thinking. Because why? Once you say, we've all sinned, what's sin? You know, interestingly, this is the church always tries to water down the Bible to make it um, palatable to people, which is interesting because the more you water the word down, the more it becomes irrelevant to people. It's not more palatable. It's, it doesn't mean anything. And this is the thing. I've, I, you know, back in, the, back in the 80s, 1980s, there was a big push, and it carried for a good 10 to 15 years. All the preachers were preaching. All the books were about it. But basically they were saying... You don't have to verbally tell somebody about Jesus. Just live as a good Christian around them, and they will know. And the problem is, is the only thing that you have done is you have shown them that you're different, and then they go to hell knowing you're different. That's all. Every now and then, very, very rarely, somebody will say, how are you different? But if you're never talking about Jesus... They never, I, I, I heard preachers in my life say, you don't even have to tell them you're a Christian or that you go to church or anything. What is the point? In fact, I'll, I'll tell you something going on right now because things cycle. What is that now? 40 years later, we're, we're really deal, dealing with this again on the mission field. We're seeing a lot of uh, missional organizations that are taking, this is their missional stance is, they, when they get saved, when somebody in that country, wherever they go, when somebody in that country gets saved, they encourage them to keep it quiet, not tell anybody, 
to be undercover Christians in their homes and their villages and all this other stuff. Here's the problem with that. That's the opposite of what Jesus said. They're keeping them from persecution for, or death, even to the point of death. They're, they're potentially being insider information people, you know, who's, who's susceptible to this, um, whatever. And they, and they teach them to ask questions, but don't ever tell anything about Jesus. Let the missionaries do that, and you bring them to the missionaries. And, and, the, and I just think I, I just, there's too many problems with that. You say, well, they don't go through persecution. But that's not our goal as a human being. Our goal as a human being is to glorify Jesus. Our goal is to plant the seed. And then Jesus does the saving. Yeah. yeah. If, if, um, if nobody ever knows you're a Christian, they're not going to know how to be a Christian. Romans says, how are they going to know unless someone tells them? Not lives really good around them. Secretly. Oh, come on. But that, that was a popular thing back then, and it's becoming a, a strong missional mentality now in many missions organizations um, around the world. So, so here's another thing that, that, um, that kind of came out um, as, a, as, a, uh, as a popular teaching, I guess you could say, it's in, uh, in, in uh, modern thinking, is the fact that, um, that you really don't, you don't, you don't talk about the negatives, right? You don't talk about hell. You don't talk about sin. And this is the way, the reason I said it that way first is I'm going to tell you how they, how they have framed it, and you're immediately going to recognize this. Okay, sin is not that big of a deal. Don't overdo sin because it's not that important in the big picture. As long as they love Jesus and Jesus loves them, sin doesn't ever have to come into the subject. And this is the way they began to define, this was in the, the mid-90s to the mid early 2000s, is the church began to define sin as missing the mark. Right? Now, what we say is, well, that means you just didn't hit the center of the target. You, you didn't do bad. But you just didn't hit them. You didn't hit the mark. You still were going the right direction. Everything was okay. You just didn't hit the mark. Guys, that is not what sin is. Sin destroys. Sin completely corrupts your soul, your spirit, your mind. It destroys the way you process things, people, information. It, it, it hinders the way you interact with people. It hurts those around you. It's not just, I kind of missed the mark. But that's how we begin to preach it and teach it, because that was more palatable. <clears throat> yeah, you just made a mistake. I'll tell you, the first time I ever heard this, and I heard this, I, I listened to a sermon. Well, I'll just tell you who it was. It was Ted Haggard. I listened to a sermon by Ted Haggard, and he kept using the statement, that's not God's, that's not God's best plan for your life. Best plan. Do, do you hear how subtly deceptive that is? A life of sin is not God's best plan for you. No, that's not actually how God looks at it. 
A life of sin is the opposite of what God wants for you. It is death and destruction, and Jesus came to give you life. How? Yeah. And then and then what you begin to do is you begin to tie that into being obedient and trying to listen to God's plan for your life. And then we come up with all these other things. I've read books about this, like the 10 different wills of God. You you ever heard some of this stuff? God's perfect will. What's another one? Permissive will. It's not his plan, but eh, he'll let you do it. Anything that's not his perfect will. Now, we can't be perfect, and we're never going to land perfectly in the middle of everything he's asking us to do. Okay? That it, would be, it would be arrogant to think that you can because somewhere along the line, you're going to be trying to accomplish that within yourself. All right? But can you follow God's plan? Yes. Everything else is what? Potentially disobedience, going the wrong direction, doing the wrong things. Now, don't let that, let's, let's go back to Romans 8, 1. Don't let that be condemning to you because God is very graceful. He's very merciful and he will carry you along and keep you as best as you let him. He will keep you walking in the path that he desires for you to walk. You're not going to hit every footstep identically perfect. It's not possible. But your goal is not to just kind of be near. Well, that's the, that's the direction. You know, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And here's how I've, I've heard people verbalize this so much is I'm going to walk my path and, God, and ask God to bless it. And, and I'll probably be doing what he wants me to be doing. I'll probably. To me, that's not okay, Al. And he was explaining that's what we should all be doing. Okay? Russell? Now, I think it comes down to we want God to mold our lives, or are we still trying to hold on to God? That, that's exactly it. Okay, now, this brings us back to we're, we're trying to tell somebody about Jesus. Somewhere along the way, you're going to need to get the basics. And one of the very beginning basics that you can begin to interact with them about is who's in charge of your life. You serve somebody. Is it you? Do you serve you? Because you really can't serve you. you. You don't realize that. Human beings don't realize it, but you can't serve you. Okay? If you're serving you, who are you serving? Satan, Satan down the line. Now, that's not necessarily the first few words you say to somebody, right? Um, I see you're serving Satan. But, you know, but somewhere... Somewhere along the way, you say, I know, and this, this is my experience with this, the more you can use yourself in the failure and the sin part, rather than pointing at them, the easier it is for them to see it. Okay? I know for me, when I try to do things my way, I end up really messing my life up. I can give you tons of examples of, of people I've talked to over the years with that. I had a guy, I think I've told some of this before, but I had a guy I was sitting on my porch one day and and um, this was years ago. This was before, uh, right about the time Emily was born. And um, our neighbors were uh, drug dealers. And there was a, um, a bunch of them living in the house next door. This wasn't a good neighborhood. 
and there was a bunch of them living in the house. And one day I was sitting there waiting for um, our men's director of our church. We were having men's breakfast. We only had one car. So he was coming to pick me up and so Linda could have the, our car. And um, so I'm sitting on the porch waiting, and this neighbor comes walking over. And he's known all over town. This is a big-time guy, very dangerous guy. And he walks over and uh, sits down beside me on my porch. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I, you know, I, I wanted to say, that's a very nice 1911 you have sitting in your belt, <laughs> sir. You know, that kind of thing. And um, so he sits there for a minute and he says, I think I need to know about Jesus. And he just starts crying. That does not happen very often, okay? That just doesn't. But here's one of the things that it showed me. And, and I kind of, I mean, I already kind of thought this way. But I really, I really get frustrated with the church's mentality that the world doesn't really want Jesus. They do. Name the top five or six things you want out of life, and everybody on the planet is going to have that in their top ten list too. It's a guarantee. We all want the basic same things. The horrible people of life, the good people of life. We all want the same stuff. But, but some people are quicker to admit it. Some people... Don't see Jesus as being the uh, way for that to happen. I mean, there's a lot of things to this. So I began to talk to him. And this is the sovereignty of God. You want to see the powerful hand of God. Uh, our men's uh, ministries director drove up, gets out and starts talking to him. Both, both the, the drug dealer next door and our men's director are both Hispanics. He walks up, and our men's ministry director looks at him. And I don't remember the names, but he said, are you so-and-so's son? And the drug dealer says, yeah. He goes, I went to high school with your dad. He's my best friend. What are you doing sitting here? He's a crying, you know. And, and um, I'd already talked to him for a few minutes and, and prayed with him. And Leo walks up to him and says, man, let's pray again. I want to get some of this. And he said, I already, I already prayed with Scott. He's like, so I want to pray too. I want to tell people I was a part of the day you got saved. You got to know Leo. That's how he was. And uh, the guy prayed again. And pretty soon the guy's up and he's hugging this guy. This, I mean, this, this doesn't happen. Except here's the reality. It does happen. It did happen. Because why? That guy was going through, and there's a bunch of stuff that had just happened in his life that week. You know, drug dealers can lose children and, and have their wives divorce them and stuff too. And, uh, and his life's messed up. And so he ends up giving his heart to Jesus sitting on my front porch. Why? Because he needed the same things that I need. And then God makes sure that Leo walked up. That's just because God's cool that way, you know. Maybe, uh, maybe God didn't trust me. <laughs> maybe he's like, I'll send Leo too. But, but here, here's the thing is, guys, at the end of the day, do you really believe your message? Do you really believe that Jesus died on the cross for your neighbor? Not for you, but for your neighbor. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for them? Do you believe they need to know this? Do you believe this is important information for them? You say, yes, I do. I believe all that. Very rarely have I ever had a Christian say, no, I don't believe any of that stuff. We believe it, but guys, how much do we believe it? Because how much we believe it will be determined if we try to at least do something to engage them, talk to them, interact with them, or do something like that, right? 
We see where then these guys were, they were convinced by Jesus themselves in their own life. So now they got to start getting out and telling others the excitement of that. One of the, one of the um, most um, confident times people have when they're trying to tell people about Jesus is right after they get saved, which is just the stories we read. Because right after you get saved, you're thinking of the four or five um, people that you hang out with that are your friends, and you realize they're not going to heaven either. And they're your best friends. It takes us a while being Christians to be numbed by the church and to be numbed by Christian thinking and numbed by Christian life to where we stop caring about souls. I, I said that intentionally divisive, right? When we first get saved, we're just excited. Man, I, I, love, I love this Jesus guy, right? This is part of my thing that I try to do, and I, this is why I preach and teach this stuff regularly, is I want to try to stir something within me, and I want to try to help stir something within you that reignites that excitement sometimes and says, wait a second, Jesus is pretty amazing. And he's done a lot for me. And he really is the answer. He really is the answer. Not to, to get all over my message this weekend, but, but Jesus really does care about lost people. He doesn't categorize them into LGBT this or um, you know, bank robber this. or He doesn't categorize people. He says, people without me and people with me. And the people without me I love so much that I gave my life for them. And they need me. That's his passion. It's as hard as his desire. They need me. They need my, my love. They need my grace. But he's not going to pop down into this world again in physical form. So, so how do people see his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion? How do they see that? Through us. It's the only, it's the only way. That's why, that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. That's the job of the Holy Spirit is to jump in the middle of your life and soften everything up, to get you thinking about something besides yourself, to get you thinking about Jesus, to get you um, processing the Word, get you melting your heart to where you begin to be compassionate for people, compassionate for their stories, compassionate for what's going on. I'm, I'm processing this a lot right now in all the political stuff. Um, <clears throat> I'm not having a problem loving all of the far-left people that are so liberal in all their thinking. I don't have a problem loving them. Um, they're very, very broken people, and it's very, very obvious all the time to me how broken they are. When people attack me online and everything, the only thing I see is broken, pe broken people. I don't have a problem loving them. The people that I struggle with, not loving, but having patience with and grace and mercy with, is all the people that are saying that they're Christians and they're treating all those people horrible. That's where I struggle. I struggle with people that are saying they're Christians, but they don't stand for God's word, and they waver on things. Now, yes, they're political things in nature, but things like the church won't stand for abortion, won't stand against sin, all this kind of stuff. That stuff I don't have patience for. I just don't. I should more, but I don't. But the, but the lost I have no problem with. <clears throat> that is who Jesus was. You guys have heard me talk about this quite a bit, but Jesus was very critical, sarcastic, and, and um, pretty much attacked religious people. 
but he was completely loving and gracious and open-armed um, person to all the broken people. Remember Luke 15.1. I've, I've talked about this a lot. Luke 15.1 is my favorite. This is my defining scripture as a minister, not personally. But this is my, like, my missions scripture as a minister, Luke 15.1. Does anybody remember? I've mentioned it a few times. Anybody remember what that scripture is? All the worst sinners of society gathered around Jesus because they wanted to know what he had to say. I love that. All the worst sinners in society. I've worked at that. I've worked at that in many different settings. To where you walk into a setting and you know this is a spiritually hostile environment. Maybe not relationally, but spiritually hostile environment. How can you, how can you think and act and, and um, be Jesus? To the point where the sinners, if you want to use that term... The sinners are actually interested in what you're saying. I, I've told you some. I haven't gone into great detail on a lot of this stuff. But I've, I've had opportunities to talk and speak at some of the LGBT gatherings in Colorado Springs. So a bunch of just interesting God kind of things that God put together. And I've, and I've interacted in some of these kind of things. And I've never been disrespected. I've never been shouted at. I've never been attacked. Nothing. And I get up and I talk about Jesus, and I and I openly, blatantly talk about how I believe because because that's is when they know I'm a minister. What is the first question they're going to ask me? Is it a sin? That's the question I get every single time. I've never not got that question. What's the answer? Yes, it's a sin. But here's what I say to them: You. You believe strongly in your, in your mindset, in your worldview, and you've you know, come out of the closet or however you want to verbalize that, you are standing on this lifestyle. If you caved on your lifestyle on a whim, no reason for it, but you just caved, what would all, of this, all these people in this room think? And they immediately, oh... How dare you do that? You've, you've turned your back on it. You've, you've destroyed our trust in you. All these different things. And I said, okay, I believe that the Bible is my foundation. And the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. So whether I like to verbalize that, whether I like to stand on that or not, that is what the book that I believe is the foundation of my life says. So I can't be a hypocrite and say it doesn't say it. And immediately everybody goes, yeah, I kind of get that. I've never had anybody argue with that. Doesn't mean they like it. Doesn't mean they want me to believe that way. But and they said, well, are you here to change us? Yeah. Long term, my goal is that you all see Jesus the way I see him and that you get saved and you give your heart to Jesus. I said, but I'm not, I can't do that and I can't force that upon you. And I'm not going to beat you up with that and I'm not going to attack you with it. But yes. But I also, and I usually try to bring this, a few examples of this in. I said, but I have people in my church that don't serve God, are sinning, and they're going to go to hell if Jesus comes back right now. I also want them to accept Jesus. And I don't know what lifestyle they're in. They may have just showed up or someone. I don't know who they are, but I want everybody to know Jesus. Now, and I tell them, if you think Jesus, I, that he's not real, he's not God, all that stuff, then that's your choice. 
I, don't, I can't convince you of that. There's nothing I can do to convince you of that. Because it's, it's interesting. I, I, have been, I have been picked on over the 30-something years of ministry. I've been picked on by church people way more than people out in the world. And I witness all the time. I'm always talking to people. And I have very rarely ever had somebody say, shut up, I don't want to hear about your Jesus. Maybe twice, ever. But I've had a lot of church people say things like that and worse and worse and worse. If we just love the world and care about them, it's amazing what the Lord can do. I want to finish with this, and and we're going to talk about this. Um, I'm actually going to talk about this in a few weeks. I'm going to talk about it on the weekends. Um, um, Starting the first part of September, I'm going to... I'm going to unroll this out to you, and I'm going to explain this and do all this kind of stuff. But uh, Every Home for Christ has an app for your phone. And um, I looked at it uh, a couple years ago, and it was, it was a little convoluted, a little hard to use and things, and I didn't use it. I didn't jump into it with us as a church, but I liked the concept. Every Home for Christ just fixed it, made it, I believe, very usable, and now I'm very much behind this, and I think it's something that can help us. Okay, basically, you download the app, you put your information, you put your address in there, and then it shows your neighborhood. And your goal now becomes the person on each side of you and the two people across the road from you. Four houses. And, there, and you see there, and you push the little button across the road, and it'll give you their address. Okay? And you got a little notepad that'll pop up and some things that you can do. But you have, you have two basic goals. Begin to pray for that person. Now, there's actually two steps before that that are spiritual mental steps that I'll explain in the future. But you begin to pray for that person, and you keep praying for them and looking for opportunities to engage them. That's it. Pray for them. Look for opportunities to engage. And when you engage, you push. Well, when you pray for them, you start praying for them, you push the button, and it turns blue. Then you can make some notes. Then you push the button again, and it'll say, if you engage them, and you engage them, that means you started a conversation. So you haven't witnessed to them or anything. You just started a conversation. And then it turns red. And that's going to be our goal as a church. Start praying for the four people around us and try to engage them in conversation. And here's something interesting I've found. When you begin to pray for your neighbors, it's amazing how much you start caring about all the things going on in their life. Right? You start caring about, you know, when you, when you hear an argument next door. If you live as close to people as I do, you hear arguments. In fact, you can tell them every detail about the argument, you know, later. Uh, especially if you take notes like I do. But, <clears throat> but you get to know your neighbors. And here's the other part, guys. They get to know you. They get to know you. Now, one of the people that we've connected with in our neighborhood the most, and part of the reason is because they have been there the longest, is the people behind us. It's not the two sides and in front of us. It's the people behind us that we share a fence with. We actually give their dog Christmas presents. Yeah, we, well, and, then, and then there's another one, not directly behind us, but kind of cat-a-cornered. I give their dog gifts now, too. Um, but they're from Africa, and I've really been enjoying getting to know them. But the people directly behind us, we've known the longest. We know their dog name, um, their kids. Uh, Emily went to school with one of their kids, all this stuff. So, so you can, you know, broaden it out a little bit. But our goal is just pray for them. And then look for a way to talk to them. You know, if you're, if you're 
Like I said earlier, making a plate of cookies, take some cookies to them. Nobody's going to say, I don't want your stinking cookies. Even if they're, even if they're gluten-free people, they'll still take your cookies. Somebody will eat their, that cookie. Their dogs will eat that cookie, right? But you can also ask when you hand them the cookies. You can say, um, do you have any like gluten issues in case I want to bring you some more in the future? Now you can make a note. They don't like gluten. Right? And so then you can begin to make more notes. Um, their kid just had a birthday party. Right? Think about this. If you just, if you just do this. Now, I, I do want to... What time is that? Let me throw a few things out quickly just for us, okay? Um, uh, Pat said trust. Okay, you got to trust God. You got to trust that this is God's message. It's not yours. You got to trust um, God that he saves them. You don't. But you also have to trust God enough to open your mouth and say something. Start engaging them. Start talking about it. You will get an opportunity to talk to them later. Okay? Um, let, let me jump. I, I'm going to talk more about this in the next few weeks. Um, something else we're going to do in uh, the next couple of weeks, we've got some things happening. So in about... Um, a month from now, on Wednesday nights, we're going to start talking about, I mentioned this like two years ago, James and I started um, processing some information about a bunch of stuff, and here's basically what we're going to do. We're going to spend maybe one, probably two weeks on this, but we're going to talk about what happens if the state, the federal government, somebody says you cannot have church. What do we do? Huh? Yes, we all meet here. Um, and you guys know, I'm not just going to cancel church because the governor says it. I prove that, right? But there can be a time in the future when that's not a possibility. And so we're, we've got some contingency plans, some different ways that might happen, different ways that it can unfold. In other words, is it a complete shutdown or can we meet some? Or can you meet at your homes? Uh, will we have internet? I mean, we've we got a bunch of stuff we've, we've put down and processed here. And we're just going to unfold some of this. This is what James does. Um, he, he does um, crisis prevention and stuff like that. Um, am I saying that right, Beth? Yeah, he, he actually causes the crisis first and then teaches you how to work through it. But um, so... So, uh, so we're just going to kind of educate some on this, but I am going to be talking about soul winning a little bit more um, the next time we get together. But I did want to answer um, Michael's question quickly, and then I can expound on this in the future. How do you get from just engaging in conversation to actually talking about Jesus? Anybody got an idea? Okay, we already have all of that. I'm saying all that's been established. You're already having the conversation. They're already a trust. You know your neighbor. You've been interacting with them. Maybe you even had dinner at their house or them at your house. What well, I don't know. But, but there is that relationship that you're going on. How do you take it to the conversation of Jesus? That's a very good start. I, I didn't hear what you said, Rick. Individual is very much a part of this. But, but here's a simple answer, and, and, and what Pat said is taking us to that, kind of pushes you into this. 
Just start the conversation. We, we were at the restaurant. I mentioned this Sunday we were at the restaurant talking with this waitress this last week, and, and I began to talk to her about who she is and, and God created and all this kind of stuff. And uh, my son and daughter-in-law know her a little bit because they eat there fairly regularly, and my daughter-in-law just turned, turned to her and said, do you know Jesus? And, and it didn't, the girl didn't blink. She didn't have a problem. Now, I was already talking about God and the fact that Jesus loves her. And, I was, and my next couple sentences was going to be that. But uh, she just said, do you know Jesus? And she said, you know, I really don't. But, I, but I'm very interested in this. Again, guys, it's a fearful thing for us. It's not near as fearful for, for them. Specifically if they know you and they trust you. If Jesus is the best option for the life, the only true option, the only way to God the Father, the only way to eternity with God, it's, it's okay to kind of broach that subject, right? For that moment, too. Remember, the short-term stuff is building relationships, developing trust, all these other kind of things. But what is the long-term? They need to know Jesus. If you don't keep the long term in, mi- in mind, you can float around in developing the relationship and being good friends forever. But somewhere you got to say, hey, and you can even, like Pat said, it feels, if you look like you're struggling with something, something I can pray about, is it, what's going on? Well, yeah, I wouldn't mind you praying about this. Now, what's the next sentence? Well, I'm going to ask Jesus to take care of this, but how about I also pray for your soul? Where are you in here with them? That's a very easy next question. I'm going to pray for this need, but I would also like to pray for the bigger picture, which is your soul. Where are you? Do you know him? Do you not know him? Once you start, it's not, it's not that difficult. Yeah, there, there was this lady walking through the parking lot a couple months ago at Lowe's. She was crying. And I said, ma'am, are you okay? She said, I'm just having a rough day. I said, can I pray for you? She said, yeah. And I said, do you want me to pray for you now or later? Because <laughs> don't assume that, you know, you don't just grab hands with them in a parking lot. Some people are going to freak out, right? I said, do you want me to pray for an hour or later? And she said, later, I'm dealing with issues with my marriage. I gave her my card. I had never heard from her. But it wasn't the moment. I couldn't chase her across the parking lot. But she at least stopped long enough to take my card and tell me it was a marriage problem. It's just dealing with something in her marriage. Right? Look for those moments. Well, with a neighbor, it's easier. They're standing in their yard. You go over there and talk to them every day. Why? Because you've been praying for them for six months. And God's put them in your heart so deeply, you need to go say something. I don't believe there's any easy answers. There's not. Mm-hmm. That's some of the stuff we're going to talk about later is how do you listen? How do you hear the Lord telling you, guiding you, and all that kind of stuff, too? Um, so, but we have to stop tonight. Al? So before we dismiss, I want to very much to have prayer for Diane. Okay. Um, more good for her and uh, trust that they can herself and some of the others for her and so on and so forth. Yeah, let's do that. Rick, can you grab the oil there? Um, while we're doing that, any other needs we got? Anybody, you've got something you need to pray for? Everybody all good? That's great. All right, let's pray for Diane, and let's also, um, 
Yes, ma'am. Can we what? Yes. Yeah. James, can you hear me? We need you in here, James. We have a security emergency. Code red. Code red. Yeah. Uh, we want to pray for you too. Good. Um, come up here. We want to pray for you also. Your wife told us that you would wanted us to do this. All right. So what does James five say? Who who's going to do this praying? The elders of the church. So if you know how to pray and you believe that God can do this, then you come up here and you join us and we pray. Right? Isn't that what James 5 says? And then God will heal us. That's what it says. So anoint Diane and also anoint James. Let's pray. God, we lift them up to you right now. Lord, we know that you are the healer above everything. You are the healer. You don't just heal. You are the healer. Lord, you promised us in Scripture that the benefits of serving you is that you forgive all of our sins and heal all of our diseases. Lord, we, we trust that right now. We believe that right now, that you made our physical bodies. You definitely can heal them. You can put them back together. So, God, we trust you right now. We trust you with James. We trust you with Diane. Lord, we know that you're the one that's in charge. So, God, take away their pain. Take away the, the, the stuff that's messing with them. God, give... Uh, James, good, healthy um, ability to walk. Lord, take the pain away, all the stuff that's involved with this. God, this is just the human body acting up, but God, you didn't design it this way, and so we ask you to, to bring healing. Same with Diane, God, all over her body, that she can have strength in her body, that she can have health in her body, and that, um, and that God, it'll stop, to stop affecting her in a negative way in the name of Jesus. God, emotionally, too, we know this affects her emotionally. So, God, we ask you to strengthen her in the name of Jesus. Lord, you said in your word that we could call the elders of the church, anoint them, lay hands on them, and uh, pray uh, for the sick and that you would heal them. So, God, that's what we're doing. And we trust and believe this in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we will see you Saturday morning, men's breakfast, right? Yes. Saturday morning, men's breakfast. Um, be there.